trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come to get a little bit of a take on the world. You want to see what's happening? Maybe even contemplate to what exactly is my role in all of this? You come to the right place. And on top of that, we're actually going to question many of the narratives being beamed at us around the clock. Simply because it's pretty tough to find some reliable information these days. You got to be willing to do your own homework. I'm not here to do your homework for you, but I'm definitely here to help you find some hopefully credible, timely information about which you get to make up your mind as to whether or not it's something you uh, embrace or say, yeah, not for me. I have some wonderful sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include garagedoorproservices.com, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and hslammo.com. I wanted to start today with uh, something that I, I think those of us who love freedom, and I mean the people for whom it's not just like, oh, yeah, when the flag goes by, absolutely, I stand up and take off my hat and whatever. I mean people who actually have, have made the conscious decision, I am going to live with the greatest amount of freedom that I can, keeping in mind that I'm living in a world that is increasingly becoming unfree, you know, by, by the second, more and more unfree, and, and doing everything it can to pull me down with it. Now, not everybody feels this way. A lot of people are just kind of, you know, carried with the current, and I'll go where, I'll go where it seems like the crowd is going, because that seems safe. But I guess my point here is, if, if, you, if you really love your freedom, if you are a person who's committed to living the principles and the practices of liberty, you probably feel outnumbered by the folks for whom it's just not a priority. And, and by the way, I want to suggest only a tiny, tiny minority of those other folks are actively against it, like think it's a bad idea, it's dangerous. Well, we ought to, we ought to restrict that. We ought to, some, there ought to be a law, you know, kind of mentality. No, the bigger problem is that uh, the majority of people, that big, squishy middle, they just don't care. They're not at a point where it's a priority for them. They would care if if you really pressed them, but they're just not feeling pressed. Come on, there's cold beer in the fridge. There's, you know, infinite television shows streaming right now. Life is not so bad. Probably be getting a stimulus check of some kind from the government here pretty soon. So, you know, my student loans have been forgiven. Hey, what's wrong? Life, life is pretty good. Well, I thought you might enjoy a commentary from Dan Sanchez writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. Dan's a fantastic writer to start with, but I loved his article, How a Tiny Minority Can Lead the World Toward Liberty. This one spoke to me, mainly because I sometimes have that sense of, wow, we are really a minority. <laughs> There's just not much we can do. But Dan says it like this. He says, those who favor freedom may be tempted to despair. We seem hopelessly outnumbered. The masses don't appreciate freedom, so they support or acquiesce to rulers who are hell-bent on abolishing it. Now, he says, to free ourselves of these tyrants, we must turn the people toward liberty. But the masses seem too far gone for that. 
too economically ignorant, too morally unmoored, too hoodwinked by government propaganda. Dan Sanchez says the prospect of getting such a benighted and deluded populace to understand and embrace libertarian political philosophy and free market economics seems like a tall order, an impossible one even. But he says the good news is we don't actually need to get the masses to master the freedom philosophy to get them to embrace it. As Leonard E. Reed wrote in Elements of Libertarian Leadership, quote, a study of significant political movements or vast social shifts will reveal that every one of them, good or bad, has been led by an infinitesimal minority. Never has one of these changes been accompanied by mass understanding, nor should such ever be expected. End quote. Wow. Now, Reed didn't quite discount the importance of understanding and the power of ideas, right? Quite the opposite, actually. He started the Foundation for Economic Education because he believed that the prospects for liberty depend on the success of the ideas of liberty. Indeed, all successful liberty movements of the past arose in the wake of advances in the ideas of liberty. So the American Revolution in the 18th century, for example, that was led by an infinitesimal minority of individuals like the American founders who were avid students of John Locke and other philosophers of liberty. The liberal economic reforms of the 19th century that resulted in the Industrial Revolution were led by an infinitesimal minority of individuals like Richard Cobden and John Bright, who were devotees of Adam Smith and other free market economists. However, Dan points out the average 18th century American did not pour over Locke's second treatise of government or comprehend his natural law philosophy. And yet, under the intellectual and moral leadership of those who did, he stood up for his rights and opposed tyranny anyway. Now, similarly, your run-of-the-mill 19th century Britain did not study Smith's wealth of nations or grasp the invisible hand. Yet, under the intellectual and moral leadership of those who did, he supported free trade and opposed mercantilist policies anyway. And the same is true for major movements away from liberty as well. The typical 20th century Russian did not read Marx's Das Kapital or understand his labor theory of value. And yet, under the intellectual and moral leadership of those who did, he supported class warfare and opposed capitalism anyway. As a famous saying, commonly misattributed to uh, Samuel Adams, has it, it does not require a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen to set brush fires in the minds of men. And as Margaret Mead has also dubiously been quoted, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Now, Dan says in fee seminars, Leonard Reed would illustrate this dynamic by drawing a normal curve on the chalkboard. One end of the curve represented the infinitesimal, infinitesimal minority of the population who actively, who actively advocate rather freedom and oppose tyranny. On the other end, you saw a representation of another infinitesimal minority, those who actively oppose freedom and advocate big government. But the vast bulk of the curve in the middle represented the many millions more or less indifferent as uninterested in understanding the nature of society and its political institutions as are most people in understanding the composition of a symphony who at best can only become listeners or followers of one camp or the other. 
So Dan Sanchez says it's not so much that the masses are incapable of becoming music theorists or political philosophers, although aptitude is a factor. It's more an issue of the time required to master such specialist pursuits. We can't all specialize in political philosophy, after all. And the good news is we don't need to. The fate of freedom, Reed explained, depends on which of the two infinitesimal minorities wins over the heart's and minds of the majority. But that's not a matter of turning the masses into philosophers and economists. It's a matter of which group of opinion influencers earns the people's esteem and trust and thus gains influence. Here then, Reed wrote, is a key question. What constitutes an influential opinion? Well, in the context of moral, social, economic, and political philosophy, influential opinion stems from or rests upon, number one, depth of understanding, number two, strength of conviction, and number three, the power of attractive exposition. These are the ingredients of self-perfection as relating to a set of ideas. So, persons who thus improve their understanding, dedication, and exposition are the leaders of men. The rest of us are followers, including the out-front political personalities. Liberty advances when libertarians manifest these virtues. When other libertarians see them, it brings out the best in them, leading them to let their light so shine before men as well. And when non-libertarians with a latent affinity for understanding liberty see them, it activates their potential, beckons them over to the light side, and can turn them into liberty leaders as well. And when the multitudes who are just not that into in-depth social studies see them, it elicits well-earned admiration, and trust. Now, Reed concluded, the solution of problems relating to a free society depends upon the emergence of an informed leadership devoted to freedom. In short, this is a leadership problem, not a mass reformation problem. That's a pretty powerful uh, thing to recall. Because the masses usually won't get it, right? You don't have to worry about, I've got to win everybody over to this this point of view. No, you don't. The first and most important person who you need to win over, if assuming, you know, that that, uh, liberty and preservation of your freedom is a big priority, the first person you've got to convince of it is yourself. That means you've got to do your homework. You've got to understand who you are, what you stand for. You've got to understand the principles and the practices of liberty, not just understand them, but actually live them. But as you do that, other people will be drawn into your orbit. Other people will see your example. Other people will recognize the value of what you're upholding. Does that make sense? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a quick shout-out here to Garage Door Pros, located in St. George, Utah, serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. Yep, that whole corner of southwest Utah and also a portion of Arizona and Nevada. They take care of you. Quick response, much faster lead time in installing, servicing, and repairing garage doors, both residentially and commercially, you can call 435-525-2773. Better still, go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com, 
and take a few minutes to actually read some of their customer testimonials. I think you'll be very favorably impressed and definitely know these are the guys you want to talk to. Garage Door Pros. And by the way, tell them thanks for being a sponsor. Well, if you've been a listener to this program for any length of time, but particularly within the last, mm, say, 10 years, you'll know that uh, I tip my hat often to a writer by the name of Paul Rosenberg. And, and I got to give the guy credit. Paul, you're, you know, I don't know if you ever get to hear any of these commentaries, but you'd be blushing right now because I, I have some high praise for him. Paul is the guy who really introduced me to the idea that uh, if you want to change people's minds, you've got to remember that you're talking to the brainwashed, including yourself. You've been brainwashed. We've all been brainwashed, but you got to be gentle. You can't just go in there and dominate people and, you know, beat them into submission with a point of view. And I have adopted his philosophies. I've put them into practice and have been extremely rewarded with what I've seen. And, and, and in a nutshell, this is what he talks about. Speak the truth with love. Take the hits if someone reacts negatively, if they're not ready for that truth, if it bumps them into the boundaries of their moral u- or their mental universe. You know, some people will get angry, but don't get angry back. Just smile and, you know, walk away. Let them come to the truth on their own terms. And this has proven to be an extremely effective way of helping not so much to change people's minds, but to to encourage them to consider information that they otherwise might not have encountered. But the key is they come to the truth at their own pace. And that is the difference. That's where that's where you can remain friends with people, even if you don't see things exactly the same. That's where, you know, you're likely to to have someone come up to you months or even years later and say, I can see where you're coming from. Now, whether they've changed their mind or not, that's not what's important. What's important is the two of you are better for having had a discussion as opposed to, well, there was no clear winner from that argument. So when, when Paul Rosenberg sets out to set the tone for uh, for discourse or for information that uh, that uh, could help you better understand the world, I pay attention to this guy because I think he's he's done some really remarkable stuff. He has become a trusted source of light and truth in what I consider a very highly deceptive world. So that's that's a that's a rare, precious thing to encounter, and he has just launched a new website, Vera Verba. I don't know what the meaning is behind that, but this is real-life examples of humanity at its finest. And the thing that that Paul recommends, I got this in my email yesterday, he just said, hey, maybe start your day with taking a look at some of these uh, these stories that they post, and they're very short, they're very easy to, uh, to compl- contemplate or to comprehend, but they remind you that there are some truly great people out there and in turn, that, that inspires me to, to be a better person. So I'll give you an example. You may even have seen this, this photograph, but there is a photograph of a tourist. I don't know where this is taking place. Um, it's, it's obviously not a first world country, but there is a, a tourist standing there next to a young woman by the beach. And uh, he is giving her his flip-flops. He's, he's handing his flip-flops over to her 
and she's kind of got her head in her hand, and um, I can't tell if she if she's crying or if she's just shy, but but the image speaks very very clearly. And the story behind it is this. The gentleman was a tourist in a poor country. He ran across a very poor girl with no shoes, so he took off his own and offered them to her. It really is a powerful image. And in the modern West, the the point here is compassion is something that's forced upon people. And it's implied, well, you're very bad if if you don't comply with this forced compassion, which is we'll take your money from you and then we'll help the needy. We'll help those who are, you know, less fortunate you know, through this massive bureaucracy of the welfare state. And that's turned a lot of thoughtful people against what's called compassion. So the point is, forced compassion, as it happens, is the enemy of organic compassion. In other words, compulsion negates compassion. What you see in this image is real, unforced compassion. It's being expressed spontaneously out of the goodness of this man's heart, not by guilt, or pressure. And as a result, it carries a deep and abiding beauty. The point being that compassion is in us, it can and should flow out of us freely. When that happens, the world is improved and we become better creatures. And I love this this footnote at the end of the article. It says, now, before going back to the mundane, please recall times when you showed actual compassion, not because somebody forced you to, or because of guilt, because you wanted to help someone. Take some time replaying that in your mind or imagine doing something like this. Now, this is a fairly new website. Again, veraverba.com. V-E-R-A-V-E-R-B-A. I think there are only maybe four stories posted as of yet. But every single one of them is just remarkable. I mean, there's, you know, here's an image of a man uh, who was apparently about to commit suicide. He was standing on a bridge. He climbed, you know, over the railing, was ready to jump. But while he was there, passersby came to him. And you can see people. They hugged him. They did whatever they could to prevent him from jumping. Others, you know, they actually brought ropes. They, like, tied him to the bridge until, you know, authorities could come and, and, and help, uh, you know, get him to safety. But it really strikes you. You can see people, you know, reaching through the railings to hug him. Now, look, I've I've not encountered anything quite that dramatic as I go about uh, my day to day activities. But how powerful is that? To see people who, you know, came to just to to come to this man's aid to to try to persuade him that the world is a better place with him still a part of it. Here's another story. This is a ballerina by the name of Aisha Ash. She takes a day to go around to the very poor and likely dangerous areas of a city in her full ballet outfit so that poor girls can see the possibility of a better future. You think about it. These kids uh, living in the inner city, particularly in some of the ghetto areas, they don't have many opportunities to see themselves in a better place. So to see someone who looks like them doing something successfully and very well, that opens up the world of possibilities to them. It's a very potent form of helping others. And again, in each instance, you see a picture, you see a story, and it's something that reminds you of the 
inherent goodness that can be found in human beings. And then a question about, uh, think about the last time you did something like this. I just love this approach. And I know for some people, this may seem too kumbaya. Come on, where's the blood and guts? Where's the rage, rage against everything? And I'm telling you there, I know it feels good. It feels good to, to, to rage. <laughs> but I think what we need is more of the approach that Paul Rosenberg is advocating here. And that is simply to be reminded that there is goodness out there in the world and to recognize it and to contemplate the times when we have been a part of that or to recognize the opportunities right in front of us to be a part of that. Anyway, I have a link to his website, veraverba.com. You might want to spend a few minutes on there, maybe first thing in the morning, maybe last thing before you go to bed at night. It definitely offers some encouragement. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. It would mean a lot to me if you are in the market for ammo, if you would reach out to HSLAmmo.com and do some business with them. They sell high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition, all the popular calibers, and definitely... uh, Definitely something you might want to consider stocking up on as a store of value. If you're worried about, well, gee, my dollars are depreciating every month because of inflation and they're buying less and less. Well, if you're not buying gold and silver, there are other precious metals you can invest in as well. Lead, copper, and brass being among them. HSL Ammo can help you with that. All right, so I wanted to uh, share an article I found. This is from uh, American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org. And it's titled, Yes, You Need the Liberal Arts. And I, I have to reflect on, you know, my own life journey. And I, I look, I'm not the, I'm not the be all end all of uh, analysts and commentators out there. But I know for a fact that my understanding of the world improved drastically about the time that I was introduced to what is known as a classical liberal arts education. And it wasn't because it gave me all the answers and suddenly I became so wise, my beard grew long and people, you know, uh, wondered as I wandered about in my toga, you know, (laughs) expounding upon the philosophies of the day. No, it just forced me to think differently, to organize my thoughts in a different way. And if anything, it helped me to recognize when, uh, hey, I don't know something and I want to know more about it, so... What are the questions I need to ask to get a better understanding or a more full picture of what's at stake? So I want to share some thoughts with you from John Agresto. And John, for for those who don't know, John is the former president of St. John's College. This is a liberal arts school. And uh, he's, he's got a very healthy pedigree. He's taught at the University of Toronto, Kenyon College, Duke University, and the new school. I mean, he's... Uh, John Agresto has has been around, but he makes a powerful case for liberal education and liberal arts. Now, he does note that both liberal education and the liberal arts have fallen on hard times of late. 
And he says, if we think there's a reason to resuscitate and revive them and still a window in which to do so, he says, we better not rely on the bromides of the past. The most damaging accusation against a liberal arts education is that it's practically useless, even if morally and spiritually valuable. But he says that is simply untrue, both for individuals and for society at large. He says it's easy to show how the study of medicine or business might be of use to individuals as well as to society. But when it comes to the liberal arts and especially the humanities, showing the personal benefits or the societal benefits of Susie learning Latin or Joey studying poetry seemed not all that obvious. In the domain of utility, the liberal arts do not bake bread, nor do they mend fractured bones. In the realm of moral virtue, they don't always work to soften a stony heart. So he says, let's begin with what might be the use of a liberal education for each of us as individuals. He says, the liberal arts, properly conceived and taught, can introduce our students to the best thinkers, authors, and artists from antiquity to the present give students exposure to what would be for them new ideas and perspectives and offer them the chance to think these matters through for themselves and come to their own conclusions through reason and reflection. Now, this might cultivate the ability in them to possess their own minds freely, even in the face of what our culture, their peers, today's ever-present celebrities or the more ideological professors might think. This is among the weightiest arguments for liberal education. The freedom to think To imagine, to question, and to dissent is part of what it means to be a free man or woman. Moreover, he says, it seems unlikely that freedom of thought and inquiry can be constricted without impinging on freedom more generally. If we learn nothing else from classic literature, the great works of philosophy, or the study of historical figures, we should see that constraining freedom of the mind today leads to control in other, perhaps all, areas of human life and flourishing later. But he says, still, even this is not enough. He says, I vividly remember reading in a biography of Abraham Lincoln that he ferociously studied Shakespeare, the Bible, poetry, and Jefferson. Not just to understand this or that better, but above all, to see what the pattern of a man's life might be like. It was not enough for him to scan the world of learning and become more knowledgeable about many of life's most serious matters. Lincoln wanted to see what he might be and do. That is, he needed to understand better how he should live. Now, in overcoming our ignorance of the past through history and our ignorance of human nature through philosophy and literature, we are less likely to be ruled by slogans or unexamined opinion less likely to be moved simply by emotion or by demagogues, and perhaps even less easily duped because we lack a conception of the evil possibilities of our common natures. John Agresta says, in keeping with my view that we should stop over-promising the good that liberal arts can do, I'm not sure studying the liberal arts will make us better people, at least not as the world today often understands better, more charitable, kinder, perhaps more caring and compassionate, or all in all, more liberal. He says, there is, however, one attribute that a liberal education might indeed cultivate, though it's hardly counted as a virtue today by many sides, and that is moderation. He says, perhaps this is the virtue a liberal education cultivates best, as well as the virtue for which it is criticized most. He says, we live, as we all recognize, in a most immoderate age. Too much is passion. Too much is commitment. 
but consider an education that encourages us and our students to look back with openness and respect for possible guidance, to look at the most important questions from many sides, to be skeptical of the biases and felt truths of the day. Such an education will do little to turn our students into what the vocal and committed on every side want us to be, warriors for this cause on the right or fighters for that cause on the left. There's no dearth of extremism, of passionate intensity in this world. If the thoughtfulness cultivated by our arts can even put a small break on our enthusiasms or can be a decent refuge from zealotry, well, then that would be a great virtue. Now, he says, unquestionably, there are those in the humanities who pretend to have no idea what we're talking about. Of course, they might argue. We make our students more moral. We've taken the liberal arts from being something merely academic, merely antique and intellectual, and brought them into the realm of social justice, into the realm of politics and political activism. Through our teaching, we are producing university graduates who are progressive, supportive of all lifestyles, egalitarian in their views toward income redistribution, critical of narrow patriotism, and cosmopolitan rather than nationalistic in their worldview. Moreover, it follows that encouraging our students to be social justice activists along these political lines is part of the moral obligation of higher education. Now, John Agresta says, My sense is that many, if not most Americans, are suspicious, even scornful of using higher education for political purposes of any stripe. He says, To be thoughtful, to deliberate, to begin to understand the meaning of personal morality and social justice is one thing. But to preach to our captive audience the answers that we think we know or to be dismissive of common beliefs is another. And moral self-righteousness rarely bears the aspect of virtue. Again, Thoughtfulness is a hallmark of the liberal arts, but elitist sanctimony is another reason why much of the public finds itself so alienated from the liberal arts. So, in trying to discern the benefits of a good liberal education to us as individuals, he asks, what shall we conclude? They can keep us from being ruled over by slogans and the untutored opinions of those around us. They can give us greater insight into matters of great importance and, in a more pr most practical way, they give us insight into our character and the character of those we meet. Now, he says, let me turn this analysis away from how a liberal education might benefit us as individuals and consider what I'd like, like us most to see. How a liberal education is of value to our country. Now, in this case, he says, I'm going to return to what I know best, the American founding. And he says, I believe that if you told any of the founders that the highest knowledge is knowledge for its own sake or knowledge untethered from any practical use or learning only for our education and delight or even learning for our own personal liberation, they would have found it hard to agree. So consider Thomas Jefferson, for instance. Jefferson was perhaps the most liberally educated person of his day. It seems likely that he could read in six languages and was fluent in four there was hardly a scientific teaching up to his time of which he didn't have knowledge. Nor, nor were there many classic or philosophic texts beyond his understanding. After all, the, after the Library of Congress was burned during the War of 1812, it was Jefferson's personal library, all 6,487 books, that became the basis of the new Congressional Library. Linguist, scientist, philosopher, yes, all of that, but more than that. His education also made him a skilled amateur archaeologist, an architect, a diplomat, and so much more. 
We'll come back to this on the other side of our break. Please stay close. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Sharing this article from John Agresta on American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. You need, yes, you need the liberal arts. And he's talking about Thomas Jefferson here and the incredible, well-rounded Renaissance man that Jefferson was. Third president, founder of the University of Virginia, eloquent author of those basic principles of liberty and equality that gave America hope and direction. Jefferson learned from the study of modern political philosophy the self-evident truths that lay behind the writing of his and our Declaration of Independence. Now, John Agresta says, spur its history or disdain its author, but we know that without it and the vision of human equality that the Declaration contains, we would not be this country. Now, he asks you to consider Abraham Lincoln. What we should appreciate about him and, and all the great men of the founding of, and before him, all the great men in the founding of this country is the awareness that what was good for them as private intellects might also be of great value, of great use to creating and then recreating a whole nation, perhaps a whole world. He says, think about James Madison. Without his study of all the troubled history of all prior democracies or his inquiries into all confederacies, both classical and modern, coupled with his deep reflection on what we were once bold to call human nature, Madison could not have become the father of the Constitution. Without their philosophical, political, and historical studies of the preconditions of popular governments and the nature of tyrannical rule, Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay could not have written the Federalist Papers, nor could the populace have read and understood them. See, it was hardly modern political science that was behind the making of America. It was the liberal arts. He says, think of John Witherspoon, a professor of moral philosophy and an early president of what would later become Princeton University. In ways far from modern commencement addresses, Witherspoon famously admonished his students, do not live useless and die contemptible. To Witherspoon, to go to college and not draw from it things, many things of use to oneself and to the world at large, would have seemed like a tragic waste. Recognizing that among those who went to Princeton and listened to President Witherspoon were nine future cabinet members, 12 governors, 21 senators, 39 congressmen, three Supreme Court justices, a vice president, and a president, James Madison, who was also one of five of Witherspoon's students at the Constitutional Convention. John Agresta says, I can only assume that Witherspoon thought it was particularly contemptible to be useless in the public realm, not just ineffectual in our private lives. But he says, even in saying this, we have not gone far enough. Yes, the liberal arts were able to help raise up statesmen for this country when it was most in need, at the beginning, and again when we were on the brink of the Great Dissolve. But he says, let us remember things more ordinary. Few of us are called to be great leaders in this or that aspect of high public life. We are called to be parents, friends, neighbors, and citizens. 
The study of Western civilization, its history and works and thought, was absolutely needed in our early leaders and rulers. But what of today? We live under a democratic government whose rulers are not appointed or anointed, but whom we choose. Yes, the liberal arts may have once been the domain of aristocrats and gentlemen rulers, but in this democracy we are all rulers. So what characteristics should we want our co-rulers to have? To be ignorant of the past, ignorant of our laws and the mores and the reasons behind them? Forgetful of those who sacrifice to uphold them? Do we look for neighbors who are crude, blind to the beautiful, devoted to their own daily tasks and little else? Who in the world would want to be ruled by people like that? Now the list goes on. And he asks, should we as people be unaware of our history or the history of other countries? Should we live in ignorance of our national principles and the arguments for them? Should we know ever so little about the roots, attractions, and limits of other principles, principles perhaps antagonistic to our own? Should we be manipulated by the latest slogan or the newest emotional crusade to come along? Should we be swayed by demagogues or by appeals to our passions or biases? Should we choose as our leaders celebrities or only those known for being known? Is not the answer to all these questions evident? He says, Madison writes in the 10th Federalist that there were three evils, he calls them diseases, to which all democracies historically are prone. Ignorance, instability, and injustice. Injustice, rather. Now, he says the last two, he hoped, could be mitigated by constitutional arrangements and institutional structures, separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, and the like. But no political arrangements could solve that first problem, ignorance. For that, a rich, broad, and liberal education would be the foremost remedy. And not only for our leaders, but just as important for all of us who choose our leaders. As Madison wrote, what spectacle can be more edifying or more seasonable than that of liberty and learning, each leaning on the other for their mutual and surest support? You may rest assured that Madison did not think that what passes for liberal education today would be enough to sustain this country and our democracy. So says John Agresta. Now, this doesn't mean you need to drop whatever you're doing and, uh, you know, immediately go enroll at St. John's College or some other liberal arts university. But if you want to avail yourself of a true classical liberal arts education, that's something you can do right there in the comfort of your own living room. It does require an investment of time. Give yourself 30 minutes a day or more, if you can, to read classics, to read the old books. And I know it sounds too too simple to be true. How could this possibly work? Just read good books and boom, you become a better person. I don't know how to explain it, but that is, in fact, how it works. That's what you do. So, I'm going to shift gears, so i got a couple quick stories I want to touch on. By the way, if you haven't taken a closer look at the story of Kevin Cooper, this was the young man who went by the name Cole Summers online. Don't tell me what I can't do. He passed away earlier this year. I didn't realize he was actually in the uh, community of Newcastle and, and Burl in southern Utah. Those, these are my old stomping grounds, but what an incredible young man. And what an incredible story. So I've, I've included a link. It's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you're not familiar with him, holy cow, this, this will, 
Well, it'll encourage you to see that there was such a great young man among us, and you'll be sad to know that, unfortunately, he drowned earlier this summer, and uh, that that is a great tragedy. But wow, he left his mark on the world. At age 14, he had done more than most of us have done in our entire lives. And finally, I'm also going to include an article here from Robert Sly, Man Has Four Options in Today's World. This one grabbed my attention simply because I know a lot of people who are having the discussion right now. What can we do? You look around and it's not hard to see that American civilization is on the verge of collapse. And it's plain to see that many of the people in charge are doing the best they can to turn us into barbarians. So because of this, Robert Sly says, you have four options in today's world. Option number one, pay attention to the, to the collapse and be ground into dust. Number two, don't pay attention to it and enjoy life. Basically, you get to enjoy life until they come to put you in the camps. Option number three is to become a revolutionary. Option number four is to create new systems. In other words, go galt. Don't try to take over the existing systems like the revolutionary tries to do. Instead, build up new systems to take the place of old systems as they break down. Food, clothing, goods, services, community, teaching, art, beauty, in America or elsewhere. Create new systems. That's the most difficult of those four options, but it's the most fruitful if you can pull it off. In fact, he says possibly some combination of the four different uh, options is preferable. Certainly enjoy life, be joyful, look for opportunities to become less attached to the system, particularly with regard to building new systems. Stand up for what you believe in. Pay attention to the decline of America as much to, to get out of the way of it. Build new systems if you have the mind and ability for it. Build the systems on the bedrock principles as taught by Christ, and you will do well. You'll be a true revolutionary helping all those around you. Interesting. In fact, there's, a, there's an interesting note here about uh, uh, going galt. And, and the idea here is we have to opt out, never vote again, acquire land, secure arms to defend you and yours from this accelerating, tyr- accelerating tyranny, start 3D printing, use Bitcoin to erase economic dependence, set up decentralized autonomous communities of like-minded individuals at least 150 miles from any national border. Wow, that's ambitious. He says they will come for us eventually. In this mindless world, though, it's worth the sacrifice. We have to lay the groundwork now if we want to pass on liberty and self-determination to future generations. This is The Brian Hyde Show.